And if the rest of us would take our Bibles and turn once again to the book of Galatians, as we continue to work our way through this book, our text this morning is from Galatians 5, verses 16 through 21. Galatians 5, 16 through 21. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Hear now the word of the Lord that is holy, sufficient, and completely true. Galatians chapter 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have blessed us with this, your word, with even this word of warning from the Apostle Paul. We pray that we would take it to our hearts and that it would bear much fruit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a very profound theological statement that was made in a song some years ago. I beg your pardon. I never promised you a rose garden. And sometimes... That's the advice that we need to give to others and to ourselves with respect to the Christian life. You see, when we first come to the Lord Jesus Christ, or when we are considering the promises of God, we think that everything will be better. Everything will be easy. Everything will work itself out. There'll be no more troubles. In essence, we think we jump immediately into heaven, where there's no more tears, No more sorrows. And oftentimes, we get upset with ourselves. We even doubt our own faith when difficulties and struggles come before us. And we can face this in one of a couple of ways. Sort of the same way that we face distasteful tasks. I don't know what it is for you. One of the things for me in Mississippi was cleaning my gutters. The first way I would react to it would be to say, well, you know, that's not that big of a problem. We don't really need to deal with that. And I would say that on multiple occasions to death. The other way is to go and to do just a little bit of surface work and say, there, all done. What's next? And we can have that kind of approach to the Word of God and to the Christian life. The Galatians were faced with that. You see, the Judaizers were in their midst telling them that they could solve all their problems if they would just do these things. If they would just follow these 12 steps, 
These eight steps. These ten steps to whatever. Sound familiar? It should. It's out and about in our society today. Both in and outside the church. Well, the Apostle Paul tells the Galatians something very profound. He says, that's not the case. You're in a war, but the good news is, the victory has already been won. The power is there in the Holy Spirit. So walk by the Spirit and not by the deeds of the flesh. And so what I'd like us to see this morning is this war within. It's a war that you face. It's a war that I face. It's a war that comes to the home front, to the breakfast table, to the bedroom, to the yard, to the job every single day. And Paul has a warning for us. Today we're going to look specifically at the way the war within looks the enemy that we face, the deeds of the flesh. Next week, we're going to look and see what a disciple looks like, what the fruit of the Spirit is. And I would invite you this afternoon to read that passage that follows ours, because there's a great parallelism here. But so what I would like us to see this morning are three things. The first thing I'd like us to see is the war itself. Paul sets the stage by describing the war between the Spirit and the flesh. The second thing is, you can't have a war without cost. You can pretend, but wars have destruction and damage. And so it is, too, with the war that goes on in the Christian life. There is damage that occurs to us, especially as we give aid and comfort to the enemy. And we're going to look at the destruction that comes to our bodies, to our souls, and to our communities. And after we've looked at the war and the destruction then Paul is going to encourage us in seeing the victory. He doesn't leave us to guess what the outcome of this war is. Well, then us, let us then look first at the war. I'd like us to begin, actually, one verse down at verse 17, if you would look with me. Paul says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Paul describes for us first here the combatants, the spirit and the flesh. These are contrary principles. The flesh desires against, lusts against, the old translation has it, the spirit. And the spirit desires against, lusts against the flesh. And these are, Paul says, they're opposites. They're set against each other. They're enemies in a conflict. They are contrary principles. They're not similar in any way. You see, the Spirit of God is what leads the believer. If we are to fight this war, if we are to see the fruit of the Spirit, if we are to see love, we must see the Spirit in our midst. We must have the Spirit warring against the flesh. You see, Paul has already reminded the Galatians that this war is going on. He's reminded them a few chapters back, saying, Remember, did you come to the place you were now by the law or by the Spirit? Don't you see the work of the Spirit in your midst? Don't you see what life is like in the Spirit? What does Paul mean then by the flesh? We, we understand, I think, what Paul means by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. What is this flesh? Some would say... Well, it has to do with anything with the body, of course. Flesh, you know, 
My hand. My leg. And what we ought to do is to get as far away from the physical as possible. There's a whole group of theologians. The fancy name for them is Gnostics. And they were people that walked around saying, flesh bad. Don't get married. Don't have children. Don't like food. Don't enjoy something to drink. Don't enjoy the smell of a flower. That's all bad. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Right? Paul talks about food in his letters. Paul talks about marriage. The Bible speaks over and over again about the blessings of children. Flesh here for Paul is not so simple as the physical. No, flesh is a principle that Paul lays out over and over again in his letters. And I think there is a wonderful definition that is not original with me that I would encourage you to write down and think about. And that is that the flesh is everything aside from God in which one places his final trust. Everything and anything except for God in which you or I place our final trust. That is the flesh. And you see, that's why it is so opposed to the Spirit. Because the Spirit speaks of the things of God. And you see, the flesh takes many forms then. For you, it may be one thing. For me, it is another. But you see, it's anything that we hold up, that we cherish, that we place our trust in besides God. It could be our families. It could be medicine. It could be knowledge. It could be work. But it is something in which we finally look to as the place of comfort. And you see, that's why Paul says that being under the law is contrary to the Spirit. And he'll say that a bit later here. He'll say, you're not under the law. By the Spirit, you're not under the law. Because to be under the law means to make the law a place of final trust. That's the error that was confronting the Galatians. The law was being held up as their place of final trust. Are you worried about what will happen? Are you worried about your life? Look to the law, the Judaizer said. Paul says, no, look first to the Lord Jesus Christ. These are contrary principles, but they're not just contrary, black and white. They're adversarial. The flesh is our adversary. It is the party that wars with the spirit. Look at what Paul says here. He says, for these are opposed to one another. The word for opposed here is used throughout the scriptures for adversary, opponent. Kids, that means someone who's trying to beat you at something. Have you ever had that? You're playing a sport. Someone who is your opponent. They're not trying to help you, are they? They're trying to beat you. So it is with the flesh. The flesh is trying to beat the Christian, beat the spirit. It is an opponent. It's a word that's used of the Pharisees, the adversaries of our Lord. And yes, if you were thinking it, it is true. This particular word is used in 1 Timothy of the devil himself, the adversary of the saints. You see, the flesh is contrary to to the spirit. It is contrary to the Christian life. It is the adversary. And its desire is strong. The text says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And actually, 
the text is a little bit difficult to translate in the Greek. It says something like, the flesh desires, lusts, contrary to the Spirit. You see, it's emotionally invested, as it were. The the flesh desires nothing more than to cause you difficulty. Let me put it to you this way. We have an example of this kind of strong feeling. This word for desire is the same word that our Lord uses when he says that he desires to eat the Passover with his disciples. Now think about that. This is where our Lord is going to reveal to them that one has betrayed him. He's going to have a final opportunity to be with his disciples before his crucifixion. His desire is strong to be with them and to have the Passover. It's a desire that can't be cast aside. That's the way the flesh lusts against the Christian. These are the combatants, the spirit and the flesh. Well, you can't have a war without a battlefield. Where's the battlefield? The battlefield is the Christian life. Because you see, Paul is talking to believers. The lust of the flesh is one of the main enemies of the believer, John says in 1 John 2. You see... We do ourselves a disservice when we think that the Christian life is moving from one victory to the next. We do ourselves a disservice when we think that the Christian life is one of constant obedience. And if we see any small sin in ourselves, that somehow we must not be believers or God must have forgotten about us. This is the same principle that Paul talks about in Romans 7, where Paul is, by the way, talking about a believer. When he says, the good that I would do... I don't do. And that what I wouldn't do, I do. He says, I'm at odds with the Spirit. And I desire, I desire to obey. That's the life of the Christian. It's a life of conflict and war. Now, this tension abides in us. We don't want to kid ourselves that we can put it off to the side and somehow reach a magical place where there are no more problems. Some of you may have heard of St. Jerome. Jerome who wrote the Latin translation of the Bible, the Vulgate. He was a great father in the faith. He was one of the most intelligent men of his age. Was a a man who lived in the city. Was well versed in all knowledge, both with the scriptures and secular. And he was vexed by his sin. And he said, you know what I need to do? The problem here is, it's that I live in the city. I'm surrounded by all these problems and difficulties. If I just get away from it all. Have you ever said that to yourself? If I could just get away from it all, then I think I can really, finally rid myself of sin. And he went out to the desert, where there were no people. And nobody to cause him to be set off to sin. No one to provoke him to anger. No one to frustrate him. And you know what happened? he found out that he could leave his compatriots behind. He could leave his job behind. But he couldn't leave sin behind. You see, because the war is within us. It's as I've said to you before, that great theologian John Owen said, we must always be killing sin, or else it will be killing us. This war abides. It's an abiding tension until glory. But notice... That the Spirit also causes the battle. This is not a cause for despair to notice there's conflict. You see, the Spirit desires against the flesh. 
You see, it's unbelievers who are content to sit around and not have a battle. It's only believers who struggle against the flesh because the spirit within them wells up. Signs of a battle are a good thing. You are no longer in occupied territory. A struggle where you hate sin and you hate the things that you do is a good sign of the work of the Spirit in your midst. You are following the Lord Jesus Christ who was led by the Spirit when He went into temptation. This is the war. And the war, Paul says, comes at a cost. We need to be careful to count the cost, to limit it by fighting with all our strength, by walking in the Spirit, by being led by the Spirit. And the destruction comes in this litany of sins that Paul lays out. It's a long list, isn't it? And in a sense, it's a bit chaotic. I'm going to give you some order to it to help you think through it, but I want you to notice, look this evening or this afternoon at the list of the fruit of the Spirit. It's much more orderly. It's much more progressive. It's almost as if Paul is describing one of the things that sin does is it, it spills out all over the place and it's messy. It's chaotic. But I think we can somehow condense this into three main sections to help us think through it. The first is there are sins of the body that cause destruction to the body. Notice what Paul says first. He says sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. And then, if you skip down, he says drunkenness and orgies. Well, what is sexual immorality? Sexual immorality comes from this famous Greek word. I can say the Greek word and you'll know immediately what I mean. It's the word porneia. You should have a connotation in your mind. It describes unfaithfulness in marriage, violating God's law with respect to sexuality. The interesting thing is, that this described in secular terms, in Greek literature, this is something that went on every day in society. And actually, unless it was way over the top, no one even noticed it or thought about it. Does that sound a bit like 21st century America? Some of you that have had the privilege to live and walk with the Lord longer than I have, do you find yourself occasionally looking at a magazine or turning on the TV and wondering to yourself, how did that get there? It wasn't like that 20 years ago. It wasn't like that 30 years ago. What are they wearing at the beach? What are they talking about at the office party? It just keeps getting more and more and more over the top. You see, that's what happens with sin, with sexual immorality. And you see... We immediately think of its opposite. We'll look at next week. What's the opposite of this? Well, of course, it's love, isn't it? That's the fruit of the Spirit. But it's not just sexual immorality. It's also impurity. And by the word impurity, this doesn't mean that you buy a bar of ivory soap and it's only 91.9% pure. What it means is, it's a result of our actions. It is moral evil. It is vice that spreads corruption. It can take any form. It could be sexual. Actually, it's used by one of the Greek orators to refer to something that we might not think of and might even excuse in our own behavior. Demosthenes applies it in this way. He says, someone who pretends to be your friend 
in order to do you injury. Have you seen that in the world? Someone who pretends to be your friend to take advantage of you? This is the work of the flesh. You see, we are not called to this, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. We are called to holiness. Sexual immorality and impurity, but also sensuality. The word here for sensuality means having no sense of shame at all. No sense of decency. The Christian is not to be marked by that. We see that again all the time out in the world. And to the extent that we see these things in the church, we see how the world has invaded the church. These are the sorts of things that sometimes are as obvious to our eyes as Paul says they are. They're manifest. There's something else, though. Paul strikes out specifically at drunkenness. Now, this is something that I think especially needs to be preached on here in Reformed churches because we understand the liberty that we have in Christ. That it is not a sin to have a glass of wine, for our Lord had wine. It's not a sin to have a drink, for Paul advised Timothy in another context to take a bit of wine for his stomach. But you see, there's a growing tendency, especially in our youth, especially at the RUF campuses, to see drinking and drinking to excess as a sign of being reformed and biblical. And it is not. Because drunkenness takes reason away from us. It takes our ability to have self-control, and it makes us sleepy in the time of crisis. Now, lest you think, well, that I have never touched a drop of liquor... This principle applies here in many other ways. Anything that robs you of your senses, that you focus upon and blots you out, it could be a computer screen or a video game or a hobby where you don't even hear what's going on around you and you're sleepy. That's not how the Christian is to be marked. He is to be marked by awareness. And you see, this goes, the next word that comes with it, orgies, is used often with drunkenness. It's revelries, it's carousing. The 21st century word for this is the bad verb, partying. You see, it goes hand in hand with losing reason and rationality. The Christian is not to be marked by this. These are sins to the body, destruction to the body. But Paul goes on, he says, there are other sins that mark the flesh. Sins to the soul. He says idolatry. Substitutes for God. That's what marks the world. Peace, love, and understanding as a substitute for God. Education as a substitute for God. Medicine as a substitute for God. Anything that we worship as if it were God, as if it could solve all our problems. I've said this to you before, it's the Star Trek theology principle. If we just reach X, we'll have perfection. No more hunger, no more disease, no more hate. Everything will be perfect as soon as we tweak education perfectly, as soon as we invent the perfect drug, as soon as we invent the perfect form of government. You see, the Christian knows that comfort is only found in God, not in anything else. The next word you may think is a bit odd, sorcery. And you may say, well, that's interesting. Haven't seen anybody with pointy hats with stars on them lately, or magic wands. But the interesting thing is this word for sorcery is a Greek word that I can tell you because you'll recognize it. It's 
pharmakia. We get the word pharmacy from it. You see, sorcerers were people who poisoned others with medicines, who poisoned their minds and their bodies. That's what the magicians of Pharaoh's court were like. And we see this everywhere, don't we? Those who use drugs for ill rather than good. We live in a society dominated by it. Open a headline and you'll see abortions rampant. Euthanasia everywhere. Medicines meant to heal, used to kill. This is not what the Christian life is like. And then finally, Paul moves outside of the individual. He says, the flesh isn't content to ravage your life or my life. The flesh wants to ravage all of our lives, to destroy our community. And he says, these are the works of the flesh, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. These things that destroy community. These things that obliterate churches. Enmity, cherishing hostility. You see, enmity is not, the work of the flesh is not pick up a sword and go hit someone with it. It's standing in the corner, looking like this, seething with rage. Wishing somehow you could be powerful enough to squash someone or to banish them forever from your life. That's the work of the flesh, if you felt that. You need to put it to death. Strife, it's the very antithesis of peace. And it's found everywhere in the churches. The books to the Corinthians are filled with it, both first and second Corinthians. Paul uses this word over and over again. It's a quarreling, it's a strife, it's a bickering. There's a cure for this. It's called humility. Putting others before yourself. Not giving in to strife. Jealousy. Often associated with strife. Put together in several places in the scriptures. It's a selfishness. It's wanting what others want. This hits old and young alike. Children, this is a sin that comes right at you all the time. I want his baseball glove. I wish I could do this. I wish I could do my homework as fast as he does. I wish I had his TV. I wish we went there on vacation. Adults, it hits us as well. We need to especially be cognizant of this now. As we think about our church, I wish our church was bigger like that other church. I wish we had twice as many people. I wish the building had this. I wish the building had that. Can't you do this? I would like this. I would like that. That's the work of the flesh. Not being content with what God has given. Fits of anger. No rationality. I'll give you one illustration to illustrate it. That's something you know all well. Have you ever given someone instructions and before you finish the instructions, they rush off to do the job? That's what a fit of anger is like. It takes you from your senses. You fly into a rage. You can't even think. Rivalries, dissensions. This is like climbing the ladder of success. And this is not just politicians. We're getting into the stage now where politicians are already jockeying to run for president. This happens to ministers and elders. I wish I had more staff. I wish I had a bigger church. I wish I could. Can't you help me get... These are the works of the flesh. Divisions. This is rampant in the church. 
Let me put it to you in a way that really hits us hard. Clicks. Paul says, don't form clicks. That's not Christian. Children, young people, ladies, elders, pastors, don't form cliques. Divisions in the body are not to be had. The body is to be unified in Christ. Envy, not being able to handle someone else's prosperity. Again, a brief illustration will suffice. It's like the person that walks by in the parking lot, a BMW or a Lexus, I can't bear the thought of someone having it. So they reach in their pocket and take out a key and walk down the side. Why? Do they gain anything from it? No. But it makes them feel a little bit better that they've denied someone else something good. That's what envy's like. It's destructive. You'll notice I've been going on. There's nothing positive in any of these things. And Paul says, you know, I could go on and on and on and on. He says things like this, lest you think this is a comprehensive list, this is the destruction. This is the war and the cost of the war. And then finally, Paul says, before he's going to launch into the fruit of the Spirit, he says, there is a victory to be found in the Spirit. You're you're to be on the lookout for these things. Don't let these things dominate you. You need to be on the lookout. You are in the front lines. It's like the old World War II saying, where some... G.I. yells to another one, hey, you, get in the war. Come on, what are you on vacation? Get in the war. What Paul says here is, walk by the Spirit. And notice the warning that he gives in verse 21. He says, I warn you as I warned you before. You see, I'm not the first pastor that said, my main job is to just simply remind you of things over and over and over again. That's Paul's job. He says, I warned you once, I'm going to warn you again because I care for you. He says, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because it's rooted in rebellion. The flesh is rooted in rebellion against God, not in sensuality or physicality. And you see, the kingdom is future. But the Holy Spirit is the earnest, Paul says in Ephesians, the deposit that we have that the kingdom is ours. So if we don't want the Spirit, if we're not led by the Spirit, why would we think we'd want what the Spirit is the earnest of? You see, there is a war going on. And so Paul warns us, we can't do this. And so what is his solution? His solution is to walk in the Spirit. He says, listen up to this warning. All of these bad things are out there. What you need to do is walk in the Spirit. What does that mean? It means living an orderly life. A life where not just things are neat, but things are in their proper priority. Right? All of these sins put something out of its proper priority. We forget about things. We neglect things in order to make our own needs felt and met. But you see, Paul says we need to be orderly. We need to walk by the Spirit. And then I want you to notice verse 16, how he finishes that sentence. He says, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You know what that is? That's called promise. He says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So if you say to me, Pastor, what do I do? I seem to be bound up in sin. The answer is, walk by the Spirit. 
Seek the Spirit of God. And the promise of God is that you will not gratify. You will not culminate. You will not fulfill the works of the flesh. It's in the Spirit that victory is found. Not the law. You see, we might think that the law is the way to combat these things. I don't want to envy. Where's my rule that tells me not to envy? Where's my reminder? Where's my pop-up note that tells me not to envy? Where's my list? But you see, Paul says, it's the Spirit that wins this war. It's the Spirit that's in the war. We are to walk where the Spirit is walking. We are to take our marching orders from the Spirit of God. And where do we find those marching orders? But other than in His Word. For that is where the Spirit speaks to us, in the Word of God. That is where we oppose the flesh. Well, there is a war going on. And my guess is this is not news to you, that you struggle with this. But I pray this morning that the good news to you is that the victory for this war is already won. Jesus Christ has won the victory. And He has sent us His Spirit. He has adopted us as sons of God. That we might put to death these sins. And that we might be wholly blameless in His sight. And so Paul says, part of our task here is to get in the war. To seek the Spirit's guidance. That we might put to death the deeds of the flesh. That we might have greater community. Greater love to God. Greater control over ourselves and our bodies. This is what the Lord wants for us. For He wants joy, peace, all of those things we read in our affirmation of faith. The benefits that flow from justification, adoption, and yes, Christian, sanctification. What we're talking about. So this is what we seek. So I invite you this week to get in the war. To put to death these deeds of the flesh. And to seek the Spirit to seek the Lord God in prayer, to seek God in His Word. This is the will of God for your sanctification. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have blessed us with this Word. And we pray, O Lord, that You would help us to fight and wage this war, that we would be responsive to the prompting of Your Spirit, that we would be found in Your Word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.